You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, fam. How we doing? Um, isn't it kind of great how our new series branding matches perfectly with the Chinese New Year stuff? <laughs> I mean, really couldn't have planned it any better than this. And if I told some of you that we just translated it into Mandarin, you wouldn't know, right? You wouldn't know that. So pretty great. Uh, My name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Excited to get into uh, our discussion this morning. Uh, Today we're looking at the question, how do we know God exists? As you just heard Todd talking about, um, that's kind of the, the framework for our whole series. We're tackling some big questions here, and this is the starting point. You know, questions like, why do you believe in God, yet you don't believe in the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy? Uh, Do you want to base your life on blind faith or on reason and science? How do you believe in something you can't see or prove? Or, if you're familiar with Richard Dawkins, uh, what he says is, isn't belief in God ultimately the equivalent of believing in what he calls a giant spaghetti monster in the sky? If you didn't catch the condescension when I got to Spaghetti Monster, just trust me, it's there. I'm sure all of us have wrestled with these questions or had conversations about them. Uh, some of these questions are from genuine searchers and others, like Richard Dawkins, or militant atheists lob like grenades in a war meant to make Christians feel stupid and ridicule religious people. And amongst all of this are a lot of things that need to be untangled which we'll spend some time doing in this series. And uh, sometimes these questions get confusing or overwhelming. And sometimes when you're talking about these questions, you know there's something off in someone's argument, but you can't put your finger on why. So you end up feeling conflicted and confused, not sure what to think or say. You're like, I know this is wrong, but I can't explain how. So our goal for this series is to help you untangle some of these things. I want to give you some reasons from Scripture to feel confident facing hard questions uh, for yourself and with others as you are a missionary at your job and your neighborhood. So today we're going to start with the question, how do we know God exists? Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll look at how the Bible answers this question. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Uh, while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Uh, Father, Thank you for the privilege of opening up your word this morning and uh, looking at what you have to say about life and reality, and I pray that uh, your spirit would speak supernaturally through your word. Uh, God, I know I have no words uh, that would uh, equip these souls or or feed them spiritually, so I pray that you would speak supernaturally through your word and through your Holy Spirit's power. We ask for insight and... um, encouragement from the scriptures this morning and uh, for you to uh, show us who you are, no matter where, you, where everyone is in the room, that you would uh, show us who you are more clearly, that you would draw us to yourself and um, shore up our faith and our trust in you. Father, thank you so much. We love you. Amen. All right, Romans 1, starting in verse 16. It's Paul talking. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, gospel meaning what Jesus has done to make us right with God. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men there is gender inclusive, so women, you'll be happy to know that God's wrath is against you too. You're welcome. (laughs) Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so that's our our anchor passage for today. And as we start to trace the answer to this question, look at Paul's argument, there's an important distinction I want to clarify from the beginning. Because sometimes when you think about this question, you know, people think about it in terms of proof. So, for example, how can you prove for a fact, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, that God exists? So here's a caveat from the beginning. This question is about evidence, not proof. People love to think they live their lives based on proof, but the reality is that's not how anyone, secular, atheist, or devoutly religious, actually lives their lives. It's not possible to live a life exclusively based on proof. Even the idea that we should only believe what can be tested and proven is shot through with problems. For one, it can't meet its own standard. So the statement we should only believe that can be tested and proven cannot be tested and proven. So why should we believe it? And secondly, while we might be able to demonstrably prove many things, there are a great many more that we cannot. So take this quote from pastor and author Tim Keller. He says, We cannot prove what we believe about about justice and human rights, or that all people are equal in dignity and worth, or what we think is good and evil human behavior. If we use the same standard of evidence that many secular people use to reject belief in God, no one would be able to justify much of anything. So for someone who insists on this line of reasoning, hit him in the face. And when he objects, simply say that because right and wrong can't be proven, I don't base my life on them. So why do you believe in right and wrong, but not the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy? Because you can't even prove that you exist. You can't prove that your senses work correctly. Ask someone who's colorblind. We can't test our senses without using them and therefore assuming their reliability. You might be hooked up to the matrix and you just don't know it. There's virtually no one in the sphere of philosophy who believes in this depiction of proof anymore because it so quickly falls apart upon inspection. And yet, most secular people fall into its thinking by assuming that religious people are living by blind faith, while secular, skeptic non-believers in God are grounding their position in evidence and reason. Tim Keller chimes in again here. He says, Reason is a crucial and irreplaceable way to help us with competing beliefs, but it is impossible to claim that we should believe only what is proven, and therefore, since religion can't be proven, we shouldn't embrace it. 
All of us have things we believe, including things we would sacrifice and even die for, that cannot be proven. We should, therefore, stop demanding that belief in God meet a standard of universally acknowledged proof when we don't apply that to the other commitments on which we base our lives. Here's how uh, Neil Shinvey, a theoretical chemist, puts it. He says, Arguments for God, God's existence should not be viewed as proofs of God, but as evidence for God. Why? Because proof is generally relegated to the field of mathematics. Speaking as a professional scientist myself, I can attest that scientists rarely demand proof that theories are true. Instead, scientists and those in many other fields, such as economics, medicine, and archaeology, seek the best explanation for the evidence they have. When considering arguments for God's existence, we should not demand proof, but should instead ask ourselves, which worldview is the best explanation of the evidence provided? So that's the category we are operating in, not proof, but evidence. Yet still we find in Romans 1 that Paul asserts we can know God exists. He asserts that enough evidences are given for us to confidently know God exists and sleep soundly at night like a baby. Not proof, because that's not the category that we're in, but deep, confident Knowledge. Look at, back at verse 19. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What can be known about God, meaning his eternal power and divine nature, God has shown to us already. And the word there for made plain can be translated as made evident. God has put the evidence out there. And remember, that's what we're looking for, not proof, but evidence. Which theory or worldview is the best explanation of the evidence we're giving? And Paul is saying if you look out at the natural world, at nature and the created world, you can see a lot of evidence that God exists, his divine power and his divine nature and some of you have learned these arguments before. Uh, they're very compelling arguments. They're also very, very old. Uh, they go back to Aristotle. They've been redone and reworked by people like Anselm and Aquinas. And modern theologians have only gotten more evidence and examples as we've gathered more information about the world. So these arguments say if you look out at the natural world, there is strong, conclusive evidence that there is a God. And the two that probably would be most tied to these verses would be the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. More on that in a second. But we'll start with the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Everything comes from something. Cause precedes effect. Number two, the universe exists. Therefore, number three, some outside force must have caused the universe to exist. This one goes back all the way to Aristotle. It's the question of why is there something rather than nothing? And where did the original something come from? If the world began 14 billion years ago with a Big Bang, where did the materials that caused the Big Bang come from? You can't keep going back into infinite regress, into nothingness. That's cheating and illogical. Eventually, something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness cannot just explode. In his book, God Delusion, Richard Dawkins admits that this is a problem. He says this, Darwin's theory works for biology, 
but not for cosmology or ultimate origins. And he says, cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. In other words, he thinks that while they may have explained how life took shape on the earth, he admits they still have no idea where life itself or the materials that produced life came from. So he says, we need a theory as to why anything exists, because it is self-evident that nothing times nobody cannot equal everything. And before I show you this next quote, I want to give you a little disclaimer. This is an actual quote from an actual theologian, okay? Actual quote from an actual theologian. Apologist Greg uh, Kukul said, If there's a big bang, there needs to be someone who calls the bang. A big bang needs a big banger. Some powerful personal intelligence outside of nature and beyond the space-time continuum had to pull the trigger. That's the only reasonable thing. Another Christian philosopher used this analogy. He said, suppose you're hiking through the forest and came upon a ball lying on the ground. You would wonder how it came to be there. And if your hiking buddy said to you, just forget about it, it just exists. There was nothing, and then now there's this ball. You would think, A, he's either joking, or two, he just wants to keep moving along. No one would take seriously the idea that the ball just exists without any explanation. And now notice that increasing the size of the ball until it becomes, say, the size of a universe does nothing to either provide or remove the need for an explanation of its existence. So that's this argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause because nothing can't just come from something. The universe began to exist, therefore our universe has a cause. Is it proof? No, but it's evidence. It's evidence that must be accounted for in whichever theory we ascribe to. It's one of the ways that the knowledge of God is made plain since the creation of the world, as Romans 1 says. Next, we'll look at the teleological argument. This is also referred to as the fine-tuning argument. Here's this argument. It says, number one, the world has a meticulous design. Number two, anything with the design is made by a designer. Number three, therefore, the universe has a designer. The teleos means purpose. Our creation appears to be very finely tuned for a purpose. And the more we learn about this, the more amazing it becomes. This is an argument that discovery over time has made even more compelling recently. Because life on earth depends on multiple factors that are all so precise that if they were off by even a hair, life could not exist. They call it the Goldilocks principle, that things are just right for human life. It makes me think of the classic film from uh, 1991, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, <laughs> Secrets from the Ooze. And in that movie, uh, if you remember, one of the turtles, Raphael, has been kidnapped. And the other three turtles are going to break him out. And when they show up to the place where he's being held, they see no guards. And one of them says, it sure is quiet. And another one says, yeah, a little too quiet. Then they beat up a few helpless foot soldiers, and uh, one of them says, well, that was easy. And another one responds, yeah, a little too easy. 
And then they see their friend Raphael, and one of them says, look, there's Raph. And another one responds, yeah, a little too Raph. <laughs> and six-year-old me thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. It turns out it was a trap. The point is, even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles know that they should be suspicious when they come upon conditions that seem too convenient. For example, the makeup of our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% argon, 0.03% carbon dioxide. If some of those levels were even slightly off, for example, if the level of oxygen dropped by 6%, we would all suffocate. If it rose by 4%, our planet would erupt into a giant fireball, and we would all die. Or if the carbon dioxide were just a little higher, let's say 3%, or just a little bit lower, say 0.01%, then the Earth would either become an oven, or we'd have no atmosphere at all, and we would all die die. Or this, the water molecule is on, the only molecule whose solid form, ice, is less dense than its liquid form, which means that when it freezes, it floats. So if ice did not float, it would sink to the bottom and the whole ocean would eventually freeze from the bottom up and we would all, what? And then there's the tilt of the earth, which is set in an ideal 23.5 degrees, which we've learned is perfect for temperatures and tides and such. You've probably never thought about it, but if it was not tilted, temperatures would be extreme and we'd all die. Or at least the humans would. We've learned that if Jupiter wasn't the size and in the orbit it is, astronomers predict that there would be approximately 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes right here on Earth. And we would all We'd all die. Without Jupiter, our planet would be pummeled with asteroids and life could never exist. Let's give it up for Jupiter, you guys. Yes. Thank you, Jupiter. Then we put our telescopes up and we pull out our microscopes, like Todd was talking about in the video, and we find the same complexity in the cell and atomic structure. Here's a quote from uh, Francis Collins from his book, The Language of God. He says, even the most basic DNA strands are incredibly complex, enough so, I'm sorry, I, I read this quote wrong. How could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance of a DNA strand? DNA with its, with its phosphate sugar backbone and intricately arranged organic bases stacked neatly on top of one another and paired together at each rung of the twisted double helix seems an utter, utterly improbable molecule to have just happened, especially since DNA seems to possess no intrinsic means of copying itself. One philosopher said it's like thinking an explosion in, in an ink factory could inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. That takes some faith to believe in. The late Stephen Hawking said in one of his later books, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many precise ratios, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Almost like he knows but doesn't want to know. And the argument against this evidence typically is some version of, we're just really lucky. I mean, 
In a universe as big as ours, our planet was bound to exist somewhere, and we just happened to be on it. So of course we find ourselves existing on a planet suited for existence, because no matter the improbability of something happening, once it happens, it's a certainty. And of course there are arguments for a multiverse, uh, millions of universes out there, so of course at some point we'd find ourselves in uh, this one. Well, you still got to answer the question of the origins for said multiverse. That doesn't solve anything. And uh, on top of that, there's not a shred of evidence that a multiverse exists uh, outside of science fiction movies or DC comics, and those don't count. So the problem ultimately is the odds of a planet like ours existing is so ridiculously low that you have to defy all common sense to think it just happened. Just makes absolutely no sense. Alvin Planting, a philosophy professor, gives this illustration to his class. He says, imagine you're in Texas and you're playing a game of Texas Hold'em with a bunch of cowboys with guns. And you're dealing. And four times in a row, you deal yourself four aces. And that fourth time you get four aces, they start to pull their pistols out. And you say, wait, 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 wait. There are trillions of universes. So the chances are in one of them, all of these things happen by accident. We just happen to be in the one where I always deal myself for aces. They are going to shoot you. Okay? I've seen westerns. Cowboys don't play. They're going to shoot you. And the reason they're going to shoot you is that even though it is theoretically possible all of that happened by accident, it's incredibly unreasonable to assume that. It's far more reasonable to assume it was deliberate for you to get four aces four times in a row. Therefore, it's possible that human life and matter came about by accident here. But isn't it very unreasonable to base your life on the idea that a one in one trillion chance happened? You'd never believe that anywhere else. So that is the teleological argument. Our world has a design. Anything with a design has a designer. Therefore, the world has a designer. So those are the two arguments for existence of God that come from observable creation, as Paul says here in Romans. And there are a good many more, and we've got those resources available for you on the website that Jacob told you about a little bit earlier. It's whyimachristian.com. Things like the regularity of nature, uh, human consciousness, uh, that's very hard for uh, an atheist to explain. Uh, there's even one about math. Uh, it, it references a Nobel uh, Prize speech called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics and the Natural Sciences. And I wouldn't understand a single word of it, honestly. Not a single word. There are some good arguments to consider. And for some people, these sort of external arguments are persuasive. And you know that these arguments are powerful because all of the new atheist books deal with them. And they wouldn't deal with an argument unless they felt it had some force. And maybe, just maybe, there's someone in the room right now who, who is thinking, you know, I was an atheist, but I didn't know about Jupiter. I didn't know that. Once you told me about Jupiter, I'm in now. There must be a God. But for others of us, and for many people, these sorts of arguments might not really move the needle. We don't find them persuasive, and uh, some people, even after hearing all of that, 
don't make the jump to belief in God. And what's interesting is that uh, this sort of argument is actually not the main point Paul is making in Romans 1. He says the knowledge of God is made known through creation, for sure. He gives evidence for it, but that's not his main point. When you ask Paul, how do you know God exists? His answer is that you can know rationally by looking at the world, but really that you already know intuitively. His answer really is, you already know God exists, because everyone does. Let's look back at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Underline, suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Underline, plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Underline, has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, underline clearly perceived, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And later on in verse 24, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So over and over here, it actually says that all human beings already deep down know there is a God, even if we won't admit it to ourselves. That's Paul's point. He says it's absolutely basic to the human condition that everyone knows deep down that there is a God. We know this intuitively. And the vast majority of people that have ever existed believed in God, and they always have, and they haven't done it by working through the cosmological and teleological arguments. Because everybody actually already knows intuitively that there is a God. This is how anyone who's ever existed knows. It's much the same as how you know that you exist intuitively and you're not a part of a matrix or some video game. But the problem is, as Paul says, we don't want to know. So we suppress the truth that we do know. The reality is too unsettling. It's too traumatic. So we suppress it. We push it down. We know, but we don't want to know. So we don't know. So you wanted to talk philosophy, but Paul takes you to therapy. He's talking about repressed knowledge. His assertion is that everyone knows God is their eternal, powerful creator, and we know what that means if it's true. It means we owe him everything, and that is a very threatening proposition. So because of our sin, human beings do not want to admit that we are completely dependent on God for everything, that he keeps us alive every second, that everything we have belongs to him. We shouldn't make a move without asking him. We hate the fact that that means we lose all control. We hate the knowledge of the true God, so we hold it down and repress it like sitting on a beach ball in a swimming pool. That's what every single one of us has done. Now, there are multiple ways to suppress the knowledge of God because it is so traumatic. So you can say there is no God and you get to keep control of your life, or you can just come up with a view of God that lets you live any way that you want. You could say, I believe in a God of love who just loves everyone and accepts everyone. And that's just as good as not believing in God because you keep control. 
In both cases, you are suppressing the truth. But very, very few people know they are doing that. Most of us fancy ourselves as neutral, bipartisan, dispassionate, unbiased, objective thinkers. We might like to think we're objectively weighing the evidence for and against, but we most certainly are not. A select few happen to, to realize this, like philosopher Thomas Nagel at NYU. Here's what he says in his book, The Last Word. He says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I'm curious whether there's anyone who could genuinely be indifferent as to whether there is a God. So what he's saying is, I don't want there to be a God because then I would have to change the way in which I live. And I can't imagine anyone is actually objective about that. So Paul is saying, of course no one is objective. And I'm glad that this one philosopher is willing to come out and say it. He says, if there's a God, then I am not objective when I consider that. I'm not objective at all. Because it means totally losing control of my life if he's there. And I don't want the universe to be like that. So with that said, I'll end with a, a couple of arguments that defend the claim that everyone already knows. There's a God. Not, not just an argument for his existence, but an argument that we already know he exists. So number three is the moral argument that fits in that category. The moral argument. This is uh, simply, number one, there is a universal moral law. Number two, if there is a universal moral law, there is a moral lawgiver. So this one isn't as much about premises and conclusions because it's grounded in what you already know. And it's very simply this. If there, is there anything happening in the world that you think is wrong? And if you say yes, which everyone does, then you know there's a God. There's more that could be impact, but the argument really is that simple. That we have moral feelings, that there are things that would be wrong for me to do. And secular Americans love to think that others should just decide what is right and wrong for themselves. Yet, when we look at some evil, like, say, human trafficking, we say it, it isn't simply that it would be wrong for me to do that, but it would be wrong for anyone to do that. It's a transcendent standard that applies to everyone everywhere. But the only way to have a transcendent standard is to have a transcendent standard giver who has written his law on our hearts, as Romans 2 says. So we insist that people care about justice. We insist that people not trample on the poor. We insist that people believe in human rights. But if there's no God, there's absolutely no basis for talking like that. If there's no God, we're just all animated pieces of meat. We're not even here for any purpose. There is no right way to live. We're just an accident. Anybody who says this is unjust and this is just, that's just your opinion. And if you say, I believe all humans are equal in dignity and worth, therefore all have individual rights that must not be violated, I would say I agree, but I agree because we are made in God's image. But if there is no God, then how could you possibly argue that humans are equal in any way? You could say it's self-evident, but to most people in the world, it actually isn't self-evident at all. And that idea certainly didn't come from nature because in nature, the strong dominate the weak as a rule. And we don't consider that a violation when a lion does it to a gazelle. Only when people do it is it a violation. If there is no God, you cannot say that the Holocaust was evil. You can say you personally find it evil, and that, but you cannot say ultimately that the Nazis were wrong. 
The only way to say it was wrong, no matter what the Nazis thought about it, is to appeal to some standard outside of nature, a supernature standard. And the only way to have a supernature standard is to have a supernature standard giver, which is another term for God. It's fairly common to hear people say some version of, you know, no one should impose their moral views on others because everyone has the right to find truth inside him or herself. But aren't there people in the world who are doing things that you believe are wrong? Things they should stop doing no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior. Of course that's a thing, which means we all believe in an objective moral standard that everyone should abide by, no matter personal convictions. So the question is, why are people unable to be consistent moral relativists even when they claim that's what they are? What we're all doing is living as if there is a God because we know there's a God, but we won't admit it. In order for there to be any widely accepted view of morality, there has to be something outside of us that sets it. C.S. Lewis had a slightly different twist on this. He was an atheist uh, before coming to faith as an academic. Uh, and he was an atheist not just because he thought Christianity was silly, but because he thought the world was cruel. Life was cruel. He had a difficult life. He lost his mother at an early age. And he said, the world was very cruel. Life was cruel. Things weren't supposed to be this way. He said, I can't believe in a God who would allow the world to be so cruel. And then at one point he says something like, uh, he realized my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust in the first place? Wasn't I, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? He says the atheism turned out to be too simple. He realized he believed in a supernatural. He believed in God as a basis for disbelieving God. And the only reason that he was able to say, I can't believe in a God who allowed this kind of life, is that he believed in a God who was good. It was just being suppressed and pushed down. And lastly, we'll end with, with another one, another inward one. Existential argument is simply this. Number one, there's a spiritual desire within us. So number two, if a spiritual desire exists, there must be something to fulfill it. And I'll admit that this one by far is the most subjective of the four I'm bringing up today. But the argument is simply this, that each inside, each of us is longing for something eternal and infinite. There are things that seem to be implanted in our hearts that tell us that we are more than just accidental biology, that we are created for something infinite. Lewis comes in handy again here in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, a baby feels hunger while well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So hunger doesn't mean that a particular meal exists and will be brought to you, but the innate appetite we call hunger corresponds to the existence of food itself. So innate desires correspond to real objects that can satisfy them. Sexual desire exists, so therefore sex exists. We experience tiredness and sleep exists. Relational desires, friendship exists. So if we find in ourselves a longing for something infinite and eternal, is that not potential evidence of the existence of something infinite that corresponds with that desire? 
We have a longing for joy and beauty that no amount of food or sex or friendship or success could ever satisfy. We want something that nothing in this world seems to be able to fulfill, something that all of these wonderful things we enjoy can only hint at at best. And this one kind of starts to pull together everything that we've talked about today because it explains what you feel when you look deep out into the solar system or when you look deep into the eyes of someone that you love. It explains what you feel when you marvel over the intricacy of the things on this earth that you particularly uh, are amazed by, whether it's protein or DNA, and also what you sense when you hear transcendent music. It explains what you feel when a loved one dies and why you also revolt against injustice in your life and in the world at large. And if there is no God, then love ultimately is meaningless. Beauty is just a chemical in your brain firing. Right and wrong are just preferences, and calls for justice are opinions. It doesn't matter how we treat each other ultimately because one day the sun will explode and no one will ever know that any of this even happened. But are those conclusions true? Can you actually say love doesn't matter and beauty is simply chemicals, that the worst atrocities in history aren't actually evil, it's just that you didn't like them? If we are actually the product of accidental natural forces, then what we call beauty is nothing but a neurological hardwired response to particular data. But we don't live this way, and we can't live this way, because we know that beauty and love mean something. In their presence, we can no more deny they mean something than we can deny the nose on our face. No matter our beliefs about the randomness and meaninglessness of life, standing in front of beauty and love, we know better. We know there's a right and wrong. And deep inside, you know intuitively that there is a creator that made all of this and that you are not just a bag of animated cells with no purpose and that uh, there is what Lewis calls a deep magic at work underneath all of this. If God exists, then the Big Bang is not mysterious at all, nor is the fine-tuning of the universe. In fact, they are what you would expect to find. If God exists, then our intuitions about the meaningfulness of love and beauty are to be expected. We long for something eternal and infinite because that is what we were created for. Paul really explains our problem in in one phrase in verse 25. He says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We have all made a horrible, horrible trade. We traded the truth about God for a lie. We traded reality for unreality. And we suppress this knowledge because we think it is too costly You think we lose too much control. It's unsettling to acknowledge your utter dependency, your smallness. Reality is very hard to live in sometimes. We have doubts whether God is powerful enough or loving enough to trust. And the solution to that is to realize that this God is not just divine power and eternally omnipotent. He's also the lover of your soul. 
He is the eternal God who not only put Jupiter in just the right place so you won't die, but he also wrapped himself in humanity to pursue you and me who are consciously or unconsciously denying what we know is true about him. He's the God not just of wrath, but the God who diverts that wrath away and into his son on our behalf. He is omnipotent power and eternal, unfailing love. And by grace through Jesus, God invites us to trade back. He invites us to trade our sin for his grace, our unreality for reality itself. He shows up on our doorstep and he invites us to unsuppress the truth that we've been suppressing. And you gain far more than you lose by coming to him, by surrendering to him, bowing to him and giving control to him and trusting him. You do lose control, but you get God. And both of those things are the best thing possible for you. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, um, this whole topic is uh, as complicated to wrestle with and nail down. Um, And the argument we see in Romans 1 is that there is plenty of evidence for us to conclude uh, that you exist. But uh, ultimately, deep down, uh, we all intuitively know. And our biggest spiritual problem is that we uh, don't like what that means so that uh, subconsciously we just push it down and suppress it because um, it's a, a traumatic thing. Uh, it's an uh, unsettling thing that's going to mess up uh, everything if it's true. And so we just pray for your help. We pray for your spirit's uh, assistance and help to uh, help us see what is happening in our souls. Uh, and Father, I pray if there are people in this room uh, who, have, who have never uh, unsuppressed that truth uh, for the first time, uh, if they are still in an unbelieving state, that I uh, pray that your spirit would just reveal yourself mightily to them, that they would, would see the depths of their heart, um, see uh, the, the motivations that they can't even uh, be aware of themselves, that, um, that maybe they have been suppressing this truth. Maybe they have known it intuitively somewhere, but uh, just revolted against the idea itself. I pray for you to save them um, miraculously through your grace. I pray for them to you to point their eyes to Jesus, um, who on the cross shows uh, eternal power and unfailing love. That you are you are powerful enough to trust and loving enough to trust with everything. And for the rest of us in in the room who who are believers, who uh, have traded uh, back at least um, uh, first to come into your kingdom, I pray for the many ways that we still suppress the truth, uh, that we still uh, revolt against the idea that you are God and that we are not, because I know they are many. And that's a constant struggle in the Christian life to to come back day in and day out and keep unsuppressing the truth and to keep releasing the things that we're grasping to you, uh, to to release our attempts to control reality and to control our lives uh, and trust you as God, trust you as our our loving Father who knows what's best for us. So I pray for for all of our hearts in the room, no matter where we are, um, that we we would trade back. We would, we would trade the lies that we hold on to for the truth, and we would trade our, our unreality for reality, and that um, 
we would unsuppress anything that we have been holding down. We need your Spirit's help to do all of this. Um, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.